This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03 on Monday afternoon, April 24th. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rob Hart. As the spring home buying season heats up, sellers should take a look from the outside before putting their property on the market. We'll find out why in our next segment. But right now, in the wake of recent disturbances in downtown Chicago and a change of leadership in the city, there are questions about the future of the Central District. We're joined by Greg. Greg Hines, columnist, Crane Chicago Business. Greg, thank you for joining us today. And uh, in, in your most recent column in Cranes, you kind of argue that downtown Chicago, for all it has to offer, is uh, basically the Rodney Dangerfield of neighborhoods in the city. It gets no respect. Yeah, it doesn't. And the, the core reason, Rob, is because it's not viewed as a uh, neighborhood. Usually, uh, when you talk about the loop, people think of economic activity and uh, offices and, and, uh, and uh, cultural activities or whatever. Those are certain important. But what's really changed in the last uh, 30, 40 years is, is that downtown is a place where people live. Um, a quarter of a million people now live in the central area of the city, uh, which I defined as, as the loop and then the three surrounding community areas in their northwest and south sides. That's that's uh, that's bigger than the population of Des Moines. It's the size of Naperville and, and Evanston together. It's almost a, the, the size of St. Paul, uh, the capital of Minnesota. Uh, but yet, uh, when you hear politicians out on the stump, uh, they always talk about, well, we're going to do things for the neighborhoods, and, and they clearly don't mean the downtown Chicago. And when they do think of downtown Chicago, they tend to ask the people who live there to kind of suck it up and uh, take things like NASCAR races and casinos and whatever, even though it affects their quality of life. And what I kind of suggested here is at the time when we're talking about more people moving downtown as we deconvert some of these obsolete office buildings, we need to start thinking about, you know, what, how do we make this a place where people want to live and make and, and, and keep and keep continuing to move uh, rather than uh, something that's just viewed as kind of a uh, a money pit. And how does that change the conversation around kind of the policy fixes to, let's say, some of the unrest that we've seen in downtown Chicago in recent years? I mean, obviously what happened in 2020 might be a historical aberration, but uh, there's always one or two weekends a year where uh, you have some uh, instances of wilding, for lack of a better word, in downtown Chicago. And uh, that's something that uh, the police and the city want to uh, take care of. And everyone seems to say once an instance like that happens that, well, this is the beginning of the end of downtown Chicago, and based on your statistics about the people who live there, that couldn't be further from the truth. It's, it's, you have to approach this conversation from a different angle. Yeah, there's lots of different uh, lots of different ways to spend this stuff, Rob. You're correct. Uh, the way I would view it is is, uh, is how many uh, how many riots you need in front of your home uh, in your neighborhood before you, before you decide it's time to go. 
clearly it hasn't hit the critical mass yet uh, uh, in downtown Chicago. People are continuing to move in. It's continuing to add population. But, uh, but again, the, the way the politicians seem to think of it is just uh, an oasis that has a bunch of rich white people living in condominiums. They couldn't be farther than the truth. This is actually, in some ways, the most integrated neighborhood in the city. Uh, it's just uh, slightly over uh, 52% white. Uh, there are 30,000 African-Americans live there, almost 40,000 Asians, 20,000 Latinos. Uh, this is an area that kind of is, is emblematic of the city as a whole, uh, and the city doesn't have very many neighborhoods are like that. And, you know, like I said, the people who, who live there uh, deserve the, the same respect that, of, that they would get if they lived in any other neighborhood. Uh, and you would think that's in the city's self-interest, too, because, like I said, uh, all, the, all those studies and, and research shows that we're going to try to encourage more people to live downtown because we want to put these, these older buildings to adaptive use. Well, if you're going to do that, you've got to make it desirable. Greg Hines, columnist, Crane Chicago Business. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Coming up, the importance of curb appeal in selling a home. Conversation that's on the money. You're listening to the WBBM Noon Business Hour. As the spring home selling season kicks into higher gear, it's important to note the importance of first impressions. Let's discuss curb appeal with Steve Kirch, real estate editor at Market Watch in Chicago. Steve, thank you for joining us today. When a house has a great deal of curb appeal versus one that may be lacking in that particular area, uh, how much money could that cost a, a seller? Well, uh, Rob, you know, the... Uh saying about first impressions applies to homes as well. Um, it may not be so much a question of how much you can get for a house, but how fast you can sell it. Uh, the homes that have the best curb appeal obviously make the best first impression on folks when they drive up to inspect them. And, you know, that's more likely to result in a sale closing a little quicker. There's no real statistics to tell you, but I mean, you got to believe, you know, it's helping sellers get closer to their asking price. And what are some things that you could do that uh, may be a relatively low cost fix to boost your home's curb appeal? Yeah, so it's basically, you know, you want to be front and center. So most of it happens at the front of your house. Uh, take a look at your front yard, maybe do a new planting bed, um, maybe do some boxes or, or other kind of planters. The front porch, that's where you welcome people to the house. You know, maybe you've got room for a little seating uh, bench out there. Look at the lighting. Look at the railings. Make sure they are all uh, up to date modern and make a good impression. And then your front door. Don't forget to clean your front door, polish up the knobs, uh, and and dust off the ringer. I mean, some of these uh, things that you mentioned uh, seem fairly obvious that if, uh, I mean, this is stuff you do when you invite people over for a party, uh, much less sell your home, but it sounds like it's it's kind of falls by the wayside with some home sellers. Uh, it certainly can, especially in a market with that's still really a seller's market. A lot of folks don't think they have to do very much with their house. They read about how little inventory is out there and they figure, well, all I got to do is put mine on the market and somebody's going to go after it. But it it often does help to make you know your house stand out among what is out there. And again, especially if you're in a hurry to move or if you're looking to get 
you know, the maximum amount of money you can for your house, it's it's going to pay off in the end. And there there seems to be like different levels of curb appeal improvement that you can undertake. For example, just, you know, polishing the doorknobs and dusting the doorbell and perhaps repainting your front door, uh, kind of on the, on the low impact side of things. Uh, you could take your garden to the next level and then you just, you know, replace all your gutters and downspouts. So it's different activities uh, to suit your comfort level or the time, the amount of time you have. Sure, and there are certainly other projects that you can do when you, you know, other things that may be tired and worn out, or your siding, or your stone facade, uh, seal coating your driveway, or even replacing your driveway. If, like mine, you've got a lot of tree roots that are starting to pop up through it. Uh, those uh, those kinds of bigger pro- they're a little bit bigger project, but they can also have an impact here on the curb appeal. And then everything else, you leave it to the uh, photographer hired by the real estate agent to make it look really nice. That's the same with they use those wide-angle cameras, right, to make your rooms look bigger. Steve Kirch, real estate editor with Market Watch, based in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next, the latest on Apple's heavily anticipated virtual reality headset. A deposit for your future. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Apple is expected to launch its virtual reality headset at its annual developers conference in June. Let's talk about the much-anticipated arrival with Matt Wren, tech expert and founder VRAR in Chicago. Where does this rank in uh, potentially game-changing events in the world of augmented reality, which is still kind of uh, in the novelty phase right now, at least as far as the uh, gear is concerned? Well, I mean, Apple's had a device pending. Everyone's been expecting an Apple device for a lot of years. And what they're launching is a little bit of a shift from what they initially said. So they're not launching augmented reality glasses. They're launching a virtual reality headset that has the capability of doing pass-through augmented reality. So instead of you kind of seeing through a clear lens, you're actually able to do augmented reality by using a video screen and AR projected on top of, you know, what the camera would be seeing. So it's 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 a potential game changer just because it's had so much anticipation and, you know, hopefully it won't disappoint. It's called the Reality Pro and it can uh, run apps off of uh, your on your existing iPad. And I think the one thing where uh, this uh, helmet could potentially be uh, really popular is that you can make FaceTime calls using it. Uh, the Jetsons reality finally becomes 2023 reality. Well, yeah, I mean, what's going to make or break this product is two things. Number one, the apps and just, just the functionality and the features. You know, it, it's going up against an existing product. The Meta, the Meta Quest Pro has similar features. And so, you know, the, the big differentiator is that this is an Apple device. So it's got to have a whole lot of functionality. It's got to have a whole lot of features. It's got to be able to beat the MetaQuest Pro. And at the same time, I mean, it's coming out at a price, the expected price is three times the cost of a MetaQuest Pro. So it, it's got to be worth, you know, it's got to be worth a lot more in terms of the experience and what it can do. And then as far as just the evolution of the tech, we have the two uh, competing uh, virtual reality headsets. But uh, at our AI discussion that uh, was on uh, our station's Facebook and YouTube channels last week, we were talking about the uh, future of augmented reality and that uh, the tech has to get smaller and less cumbersome and definitely cheaper to reach that inflection point. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the big... For, for augmented reality to become a really uh, acceptable consumer technology, there, there's a lot of physics problems that are still in the way. Like, you know, having clear lens where you can actually just see 
see the physical world. So, you know, kind of a shortcut to that. One of the things that is being used now is what's called, again, this pass through augmented reality, where you're looking at augmented reality, you're looking at your current space through a video screen. Um, it's a really powerful technology either way. Um, whether it's going to see massive consumer adoption is yet to be seen. But at this point, though, kind of uh, everyone's augmented reality experience is maybe you have your iPhone or your iPad or just your device, and it's using the camera to uh, allow you to try on clothes virtually. Or one that's really popular, and a couple of people I know uh, use this quite a bit at night, are the stargazing apps where you put your phone up in the sky and then it tells you what planets and constellations you can see beyond the clouds. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's all sorts of different types of apps, everything from games to, you know, educational content like you're talking about with the stargazing, uh, video calling, uh, whiteboarding capabilities where you can actually collaborate virtually with people who are not in the same physical space, kind of like you would if you were in the same conference room using a whiteboard. So there's lots of different types of apps and features and functions. Training is, again, a huge use case where people can, you know, train in situations that otherwise might be, you know, almost difficult or dangerous because in a virtual, you, you can represent a physical environment, even though it's not necessarily physically dangerous to you. So there's, there's a lot of capabilities here. And it's just, uh, you know, it's a big question to see how, how fast it'll adopt and how useful it's going to be. Matt Wren, tech expert and founder of VRAR in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up, investment options from our Monday stock pick. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. And topping our news at the half hour, Fox News says it's agreed to part ways with Tucker Carlson. The network says the popular and controversial primetime host's final program ran on Friday. Carlson became the channel's most popular personality after replacing Bill O'Reilly in 2016. Meantime, CNN has ousted longtime anchor Don Lemon. He's been with the company for 17 years. He complains that no one in management had the decency to tell him directly that he was out. The Biden administration continues its efforts to get Americans out of Sudan as the fighting there intensifies. More from CBS News correspondent Cami McCormick. Some Americans have been airlifted out. Some are traveling by land and overwatched by U.S. military drones. We're going to do everything we can to help guide people, get them the information they need to get out safely. But it is not safe right now for another evacuation attempt. That would actually put Americans in more danger, not less. The National Security Council's John Kirby told CBS Mornings that assistance will still be nearby. We're looking at putting naval assets in the Red Sea near Port Sudan to help with any evacuation or assistance that American citizens might need. Most of the Americans still in Sudan, he says, are dual nationals. The battle is between the current government and opposition forces led by a former military leader. It's 1232 as the noon business hour continues. Markets are mixed right now. We're joined by Chuck Carlson, CEO of Horizon Investment Services and publisher of the Dow Theory Forecast newsletter based in Hammond. Chuck, thank you for joining us today once again. Uh, and one thing I've kind of noticed over the past week and a half is that the markets have been running in place. Uh, nothing is really getting them to move in one significant direction or the other, despite the fact that earnings season is underway. 
Well, it has been underway, but it's been primarily financials for the most part that we've seen early in the the earnings season. This week changes that. There is a lot of tech companies, prominent tech companies, the Amazon, Metas, Microsoft, Alphabets are coming this week. You've got, I believe, Apple's is next week, and you're going to get a broader array of companies announcing earnings. So my guess is that the standing in place that we have seen is probably going to give way to a bit more volatility here as we get, you know, bigger name uh, companies that have more of an influence on the indexes coming out with their uh, earnings results. I was going to say, if you're uh, heavily into the NASDAQ this week, you might want to buckle your seatbelts and give them an extra tug. Yeah, it's going to be a big week for the NASDAQ. I mean, you're talking about some just massive uh, companies weighted in the uh, in the Nasdaq index uh, again, such as you know the Alphabets and the Microsofts and the and the Metas and the Amazon. So it's going to be it's going to be a, a real big week for the Nasdaq, and and you're going to get some outsized volatility in the Nasdaq versus the S and P 500 and the Dow 30 because of the way those stocks are weighted in the Nasdaq versus the other indices. Obviously, if you're an analyst, you're looking at both the numbers and the forward guidance. And we talked about this a little bit at 10:20. You probably want to get some more clarity on the layoffs that have been taking place at some of the bigger companies, the the alphabets and the metas of the world, and uh, probably making some decisions based on uh, their assessment of the rest of 2023. Right, and, and that's going to be a big part of the guidance, is, uh, and I think analysts will kind of probe companies, uh, you know, are you done at this point, or is there more to be done in terms of the layoffs? You know, a lot of these tech companies really as it turns out, overhired, you know, uh, thinking that the, the the COVID world was going to continue. And, and that hasn't from the standpoint of demand for their products and services. Uh, and, and you're seeing layoffs in some important strategic areas, such as, you know, even in the, the, the uh, cloud computing for companies like Amazon and, and Microsoft, et cetera. So, yeah, the, the cost efficiency issue, which has been top of mind, at Meta, people are going to see how important that is going to be for some of the other techs like Microsoft and Alphabet here going forward. Has the tech sector learned to live with higher interest rates yet? I think it has. I, I, I let, Let's put it this way. I think it's learning to live with higher interest rates. I think that the efficiency moves, uh, i.e. cost cuts and, and labor reductions, are a reflection of, of that. And uh, I think that they are trying to adapt to potentially a new world where maybe demand is going to be impacted uh, by higher interest rates, certainly on the on the capital investment side. And you're seeing that in their cloud computing where that has been slowed a little bit by companies making decisions, um, you know, maybe uh, pulling in some CapEx spending here because of the, the cost of capital here rising with higher interest rates. Chuck Carlson, CEO of Horizon Investment Services and publisher of the Dow Theory Forecast Newsletter in Hammond. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next, identifying a significant blind spot in retirement planning. WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. As people plan for retirement, one wild card is how long they'll live. That can put individuals in a tough financial position. Let's get some direction with Mark Horner, wealth advisor at Fairhaven Wealth Management based in Wheat. The website fairhavenwealth.com. Mark, thank you for joining us today. And one of the great things about technology and advancements in medical science is that we're living longer, and that could create a retirement headache. 
that can very well be uh, a potential problem, Robin. That was driven home for us uh, this weekend. We celebrated my mother-in-law's 90th birthday on uh, on Saturday. So, uh, so yeah, planning for that a longer retirement is absolutely something that should be that should be considered. Uh, a lot of people think about retiring as running through the finish line, which might be true, but then you started another race, and that is the race the race through retirement. So there's a a lot of things to think about in in replacing a paycheck that uh, that you no longer get in retirement, volatility of the stock market, you know. And in addition to financial things, we don't see clients thinking nearly enough about some of those non-financial items of retirement, how, how they're going to stay physically fit, how they're going to keep their, their minds active and, and engaged in different ways. And then, and then also just the household division of labor. When when two people are coming back from a 30 or 40 year working career to back living together uh, full time, there's a whole raft of things to be planning for as you're as you're thinking about retirement, both financial and non-financial. Well, first off, Mark, uh, happy birthday to your mother-in-law. And second, Thank you. Um, what kind of what was the traditional math on uh, planning for retirement? How long you were you assumed you were going to live once you hit the age of 65 or 67? Because when those numbers those ages were determined uh, first in the 30s and then again in the 80s when the retirement age was bumped up. Uh, people were usually passing away in their 70s or maybe their 80s. And now, as you said, uh, it's more and more common to live into your 90s or beyond. Yeah, it, it, you know, and I'm not exactly sure back to the 30s. I'm not I'm not that big a student of history, but definitely gone, the life expectancy has gone from the Average life expectancy has gone from the low 70s into the into the upper 70s with with again outliers like my like my mother-in-law and what we try to talk about with with our clients is planning for happy surprises and so uh, we don't have to worry about longevity if you get hit by the fast-moving Chevy the day after you retire but we're we're planning for happy surprises on getting into the 80s and 90s and you know planning for a what might be a 20 or maybe even 30 year uh, distribution of, of of assets is a is a big project. I said I saw a study just recently that less than half of Americans have even put together uh, or started to put together a plan for providing for retirement. So it's a, it's a real it's a real issue and a, and a real challenge. And what's going to happen, uh, especially is, and, and I, I see the same statistics too, that uh, a, a small number of Americans are probably truly prepared for retirement. And then what happens when the average life expectancy goes beyond 100? I mean, there there have been some studies that suggest that people could live to the age of 150 a century from now. That, that could very well be. I'm not sure if I'm going to be around to see that, but that, but on the current trend line, that could very well be. And so there's some real issues to be, to be thinking about. We're and we're experiencing a number of them right now. And so inflation eats up eats up purchasing power. So what a dollar bought you yesterday might not buy you tomorrow. And so thinking about your portfolio in at least keeping up with it, keeping up with inflation so that you can afford to live the life that you become accustomed to stock market volatility. We, you know, we've had, we've had plenty of that recently. And that to me is just the evil animal of the stock market, trying to talk us out of our investments and convince us to run for the Hills when, when frequently the right thing to do is to, is to stick to our guns and then taxes eat up, eat up a whole bunch. That could be the single biggest expense for any of us in any, in any given year. So thinking about, how do I replace that paycheck that I'm walking away from retirement 
in a way that's going to have my portfolio keeping up with inflation with an investment strategy that I can stick with uh, when the stock market does its gyrations, which will forever be part of the experience, and that I've got enough money coming into the checking account after Uncle Sam uh, takes his big bite, which we, we just experienced last uh, last week, is is requires a whole bunch of thought and planning well in advance of uh, of that retirement party. Mark Horner, a wealth advisor, Fairhaven Wealth Management, based in Wheaton. Join us this time tomorrow for Travel Tuesday, and still to come, our Monday stock picker. Your daily transaction for useful information. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Stock Picker Monday, and helping us out today is Michael Palumbo, founder of MJP Capital and author of the book Calculated Risk, based in Chicago. Michael, thank you for joining us today, and uh, your two selections, let's just call them uh, kind of meat and potatoes. Potatoes uh, securities, uh, starting with one that's been valuable for a very long time. Well, good afternoon, Rob, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, the first one is GLD, which is gold ETF. Uh, it's up about 10% this year. I've always been an advocate of a balanced portfolio, which should include gold. And, and, and usually I say 5 to 15% in gold or, or Bitcoin uh, related securities. But right now, given the bank situation, if anything, that 15% should be the, the guide, if not even higher. Uh, I'm not saying that, that this bank run situation will get worse. We, we haven't seen anything like this since the Great Depression. The Great Depression was much worse. Uh, but if it does get worse, uh, people will flock to gold. When, when this happens in other countries, uh, investors flock to the U.S. dollar. But here in the U.S., uh, that won't be happening. They'll be buying gold, and, and you want to do that before that happens. And there's probably not been a better time since the Great Depression to own some gold right here. Um, it's trading about $2,000 an ounce in the futures, uh, but you can buy the ETF, and, and uh, it, it's, a great, it's a great hedge. It's, it, it's been really the best hedge in history for collapse. And I'm not predicting that's going to happen, but anybody that thinks that there's no chance at all for a, for a serious bank run coming forward here is being foolish. So I would have some gold and, and store it away in my portfolio. I would, I'd always have some, but right now is the best time I've, I've seen in, in years to, to have some in your portfolio just in case this gets worse. And then uh, very quickly, what makes a gold exchange-traded fund unique compared to just owning gold? Well, you know, it just makes it easier. You you can you can own you can own it many different ways. You can have you know the gold bars, which that that is a little bit clunky, and you'd put it in the bank vault or you can keep it at your house or something. But that's generally not the way to do it. The the GLD ETF makes it very easy. You can have it. They roll they roll the futures out for you, so you don't have to buy futures. It just is a simple product for the average investor to, to own gold, and it's 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 really the best way that I would say that you should own it. Um, people that don't trust uh, uh, exchanges, well, then, you know, buy some bars and store it under your bed. Um, but I, I would suggest the easier way and, and the better way is just buy GLD. And then very quickly, what do you like about Uber? Uber, I love companies that, that are oligopolies or, or monopolies. This company certainly fits that bill. I uh, love the founder, Travis Kalanick, and, and, and he's given reins over to, to uh, uh, a more traditional CEO. But this company, revenue is $31 billion. It's trading with a $61 billion market cap, growing 19%, and at two times revenues, 
it's cheap. I mean, as long as we don't go into a serious recession here at the end of the year, this stock's poised for 50% upside. And there's not a lot of stocks out there, I think, that have the kind of upside that Uber has. So we love that, uh, definitely, uh, if you want to just uh, own a traditional stock. Uh, but we got like gold and Uber, two totally different uh, types of securities. But uh both both good for your portfolio. Michael Palumbo, founder of MJP Capital. Thanks for joining us today on this Stock Picker Monday. Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.